Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the New Books Network. Historic progress was made in reducing extreme poverty around the world during the years of the Millennium Development Goals, leading to their supersession by the Sustainable Development Goals. China and India played a huge part in those changes, in part because of their enormous populations, but also because they adopted policies that facilitated development. Yet now there's a sense that we're going in the wrong direction with regard to global inequality. The Russian invasion of Ukraine has been seen as raising prices for basic foodstuffs among the world's most vulnerable populations. What can we do to reverse these worrisome developments? Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. We're happy to have with us today Jayati Ghosh, who's professor of economics at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. She's authored or edited 20 books and more than 200 scholarly articles. Recent books include The Making of a Catastrophe, COVID-19, and The the Indian Economy, published by Aleph Books in 2022, and the co-edited volume When Governments Fail, COVID-19 and the Economy, published by Tulika Books and Columbia University Press uh, in collaboration, and that was in 2021. Professor Ghosh has advised governments in India and elsewhere and was a member of the National Knowledge Commission of India during 2005 to 2009. From 2002 to 2020, she was Executive Secretary of International Development uh, Economics Associates, which is an international network of heterodox development economists. In 2021, she was appointed to the WHO, that is World Health Organization, Council on the Economics of Health for All. In March 2022, she was appointed to the UN Secretary General's High-Level Advisory Board on Effective Multilateralism, which is tasked with providing a vision for international cooperation to deal with current and future challenges. She writes regularly for popular media, including newspapers, journals, and blogs. Thanks so much for joining us today, Jayati Ghosh. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Great to have you with us. So, uh, you know, I was prompted to invite you to do this from an article that I saw of yours in Social Europe. Uh, And, you know, obviously the issues that you've addressed in that article about inequality around the world are are very important. And there's a lot to say about them. So despite the successes of the Millennium Development Goals, the column of yours that I read 
uh, spoke to a reversal of the previous trend towards greater equality. Uh, and could you tell us in what ways the world is becoming a less equal place? How much does this have to do with India and China, which I flagged in the introduction, uh, which were such a big part of the decline of extreme poverty? What's going on? Well, you know, we have to distinguish now between inequality and poverty. And it's true that poverty was significantly on the decline from about uh, 2010 onwards, especially. And a large part of that was driven by China, a much lesser extent by India. But inequality actually has continued to increase. And inequality has increased dramatically even after the global financial crisis of 2008 onwards. So what's interesting is that, you know, at the time when we've seen this whole explosion of discussion about inequality, the Occupy movement, the we are the 99%, the arguments against inequality, the books about inequality, from then, inequality has worsened further. It's absolutely exploded. We are probably in the most unequal world economy ever. And that's true, not just in terms of the differences between countries, which are also increasing if you leave China out of the equation. China is a big factor in the supposedly increased convergence. But it's also massively increased inequality within countries. And that is really a reflection of economic processes that should be within our control because many of them relate to the fact that we are allowing large capital and the very rich to extract more and more from the rest of the population in different ways. And partly because then we're not doing enough of the redistribution. We're not doing the tax policies that would make sure that you know excessive assets and excessive incomes do not get uh, just explode out of proportion. We're not taxing them. We're not redistributing any of that. So inequality has actually got significantly worse. Now, what's the reason that uh, we wrote this letter, uh, which um, relates to SDG 10, uh, which uh, is literally uh, called reducing inequality, is because in a way that particular goal was absolutely essential and necessary, but the indicator that is used is flawed. The indicator is something that the World Bank managed to push through, which is called shared prosperity. Okay, And what does that mean? It means that you're looking at the bottom half of the population and saying, is their income growing at or the same rate or slightly faster than the average income? And if it is, then everything's fine. It's all shared prosperity. Don't worry. You know, we're getting more and more equal. Now, the trouble with that is that it leaves out the rich. <laughs> In other words, you're looking only at the incomes of the poor and you're saying, well, if they are growing along with national income or they're growing a little higher than national income, then that's all we want. We're not concerned with the top. We now know that that is absolutely wrong. You have to be concerned with the top because the more you allow incomes and wealth to concentrate, the more you have uh not just all kinds of expressions of extreme inequality, but you get much more disaffection among what you could call the middle classes and unhappiness and insecurity. You get much more ability of the very rich to exercise lobbying power, political power that pushes regulations even more in their favor. 
and pushes fiscal policies even more in their favor. And so you end up with extremely uh, dystopic social situations, really. And that's what we're getting across the world in rich and poor countries. We're getting uh, the, the anger and frustration of the bulk of the people who see this obscene wealth and uh, feel that they are being excluded. You're getting very populist, aggressive kinds of political responses. You're getting lots of political tensions, including religious conflict, ethnic conflict, all kinds of terrible things. So you really have to do something about the rich. It's not just good enough to look at whether the poor are a little better off. Right. So one of the things that you point to as an alternative, as a as a better measure of uh, what's going on, really, is the Gini coefficient, as opposed to this notion of shared prosperity. And, you know, I, I was I thought the Gini coefficient was something everybody kind of knew about. It. I mean, people who you know, pay attention to affairs, world affairs and things. Uh, but I realized, you know, it's not necessarily something that everybody's familiar with. So maybe you could talk about the GD coefficient and, you know, what it tells us about inequality in, you know, the recent past. So the Gini coefficient is a summary measure, which is uh, looking really at. So supposing you divide the whole population up into, uh, you know, deciles or percentiles and you say, well, every one percent of the population how much of the share of the total income is it getting? So it could be income, it could be any assets, it could be anything. But, you know, let's say we take income and you say the top 1% of the population gets so much percent of the income. And then you keep going down, you know, the till you're down to the bottom 1%. And uh, looking at these shares of income, you can then draw this line, which is called the Lorenz curve. Not that it matters what it's called, but anyway... And the the sort of deeper your Lorentz curve, the, the more that curve slopes down, the more inequality there is, right? Because if everybody in the population got an equal amount of income, then it would just be a straight line, right? It would just be a diagonal. It's not a diagonal because there is inequality, because the people at the top get much more. And the more they get relative to people in the middle or the bottom, the more you're going to get a higher Gini coefficient. So the Gini coefficient goes from a value of zero to one. And so zero is complete equality and one is complete inequality. One person gets everything, okay? So the higher the Gini coefficient, the more unequal that society is, according to whichever indicator you have chosen. It can be income, it can be wealth. You can even do it in terms of, I don't know, access to health, anything. But the the, pro, the the advantage of the Gini coefficient is that then you're looking at the whole distribution. You're looking also at the rich. You're not just saying, you know, the bottom half of the population. And that's important because we know that even in countries where, let's say, the bottom half has been a little better off, the Gini coefficient may have got worse because the rich, the, let's say the top 1%, the top 10%, sometimes even the top 0.1%, have really made a lot of gains relative to what we would call the middle classes. And that's really a lot of what has been happening in in the world today and in many countries. Yes, well, I'm reminded of my colleague Branko Milanovic's famous elephant curve here. 
And I mean, you've already been talking about the uh, consequences for politics of uh, inequality and the distribution of income and that sort of thing. And his elephant curve showed that, you know, there were increases in the proportion or the share of uh, income growth that was being distributed to the less wealthy parts of the world, basically. And then the downturn is about, you know, what's going on with the middle and working classes in the more developed world. And that seems to be, you know, the economic story behind a lot of the populist uh, upsurge that we've been seeing in recent years. But um, I'm sort of curious, you know, what would you say the... um, you know, what is the Gini coefficient? How does it, how, how do countries stack up uh, in terms of, you know, what their Gini coefficient is? I mean, where's the United States stand in an international ranking of the Gini coefficient, for example? Okay, so can I come back to that? I want to actually just, first of all, focus a little bit on Branco's elephant curve. Yeah, because sure, I, sure. I, and I have told Branco about this. I think it's actually very misleading. Uh-huh. Because what does that measure? It's the proportionate increase in income over a period. Okay, so what he's looking at is that, uh, you know, he's dividing the whole world population into uh, uh, categories. So it's, you know, first of all, it's a big leap of faith that you're comparing incomes across countries, and then you make a global income distribution, which is, you know, it's a good attempt to try and do, and many others have done it as well, but it does involve lots of assumptions. But then you say... And of course, he uses he doesn't use the actual exchange rates. He uses purchasing power parity exchange rates, right? Which basically inflate the incomes of the poor. They they make the poor look less poor and the rich look less rich. Anyway, that's all fine. Then he says, okay, this is the increase over time between uh, I forget. I think it was nineteen uh, nineteen eighty to two thousand and five or two thousand and you know whenever he does the, the periods, he says, and then he gets this elephant curve, which is really that there are the, there's a kind of hump in the lower middle part, which he says is India and China. So they their relative increase in income is very much significant. It's fifty to eighty percent. And then it goes down again because then the working classes in the north, are getting much less proportionate increase. And then it goes up again. That's the the, uh, the snout of the elephant, which is um, the very rich, okay? But this is the relative increase. This is the proportionate increase from your base, right? Now, if you are getting a very low income, if you're getting $10 uh, a day and it doubles to $20, that's a 100% increase. Okay, but if you are getting a hundred dollars a day and you get another ten dollars more, that's only very little increase. Ten dollars, ten percent increase, right? So the same increase will appear as a massive increase when you are relatively poor, and an, a negligible increase when you are moderately rich. If you're getting a thousand dollars a day and you increase it by ten, my God, that's nothing. It's negligible. So you're not really comparing the same thing. If you look at the absolute increases in income, not the relative, you know, not from your base, you don't get an elephant graph at all. You get a hockey stick. That is to say you get, you know, just minor increases and then a bam increase, massive increase for the top 10, 20%. And 
I think that's the real point that, you know, it's the idea that, oh, India and China, they're so rich, etc. There's still even the the middle classes in India and China would be not even poor in the north. They would be below poverty line, well below poverty line in the north. Whereas this is all whole idea. They're all, you know, now getting all rich and we should be jealous of them and frustrated because they're taking away all our wealth. The absolute measures suggest that the middle classes in China and India are well below poverty line in the US and Europe. I mean, that's, of course, I mean, the discussion of, you know, lifting people out of extreme poverty, which was the goal of the Millennium Development Goal, um, you know, that got them from a dollar a day to a dollar 25 a day, you know, doesn't sound like very much to the rest of us but maybe very significant if you're living at that level, right? But it's also true that this may have misled people, I suppose, into thinking that, you know, suddenly the what we used to call the third world has become, you know, has been lifted out of poverty in, in serious kind of in substantial ways. But, you know, but the people that you refer to uh, who would be poor in the United States are not in the United States, right? So how do we sort of make sense of their the improvement in their situation that led to this shift from the MDGs to the yeah, SDGs? Right. Well, okay, so there is improvement, certainly, if you look at, you know, basic indicators, life expectancy, and so on and so forth. But let's take one of the more obvious ones, nutrition. Nutrition in many parts of the world, the indicators are not better. And it's not just, you know, how much calories you consume or what whether you can afford the, what the FAO calls a nutritious diet and so on. But it's even things like um, whether your outcomes are all right. You know, do you have a body mass index, which is reasonable? And are you anemic and all of those things? If you go by those indicators, there's really shockingly little improvement in South Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa. And that tells you something, because presumably when people get less poor, they're going to eat better, right? And I think one of the things we are not taking adequate account of is this nutrition indicator, which to me is a very telling indicator of the real state of people. So, for example, the FAO does bring out estimates of, you know, they have, an, they have a uh, description of what they call a nutritious diet, which is locally specific. So there's one for South Asia, there's one for different parts of the re- regions of the world. And they have estimated based on the, you know, the price indices and everything, how much of the population can actually afford that nutritious diet. So in India, our official income poverty line is only about 15% now because the government has you know, made all kinds of assumptions about this line and done all kinds of statistical jugglery to get a, a low poverty line. So people will think, oh, sure, most of India is not poor anymore. In fact, most of India is really poor because the FAO estimate of the proportion of the population that can't afford the minimum nutritious diet, minimum, okay, 72% of the population cannot afford it. To me, that tells you something that that suggests that this is a, a country that is still dominantly poor. And poor by any global standards, you know, you're not getting what you really need as a minimum diet. Right. I think I, I've been to India. I mean, I, I think 
you know, people from the United States have little idea what it's like to live as much of the Indian population lives. I mean, it's just, you know, it's a level of privation that we can't really conceive of, in fact. So in any case, uh, I sort of wanted to ask you if you wanted to go back to my question about the Gini coefficient and how countries, you know, stack yes. up and that sort of thing. Otherwise, we'll move on. But if you want to yeah. say something. No, absolutely. That. You know why the Gini coefficient is a good indicator. And there is another ratio, which is similar, which is called the Palma ratio. That's the ratio of the incomes of the top 10% to the bottom 40%. And why is that? Because, you know, Gabriel Palma, who developed this ratio, basically says, the people in the middle, their share doesn't change very much. It's really, you know, the, the very rich versus the poor. That's where all the action is happening, in a way. But if you look at these indicators of inequality, the U.S. is among the very high uh, Gini coefficient countries, but there are some in the developing world that are really high. South Africa, Namibia, uh, Botswana, Brazil in Latin America, a bunch of other Latin American countries. In India, it's a little complicated because we don't measure income. We only measure consumption, and that underestimates the inequality, but our Gini coefficient is also growing and higher. We haven't even done surveys recently, so we don't, we can't adequately do that. But everybody who has tried to estimate even in relatively smaller surveys, we are getting very high Gini coefficients in the range of 45 to 50%. So just to remind people, the higher that Gini coefficient number, the, the more unequal the society. That's right. Yes. Right. So important, important to remember. Okay. So, uh, you know, uh, I mentioned in the introduction that you have written a book and edited a book, co-edited a book, I guess, uh, about, you know, COVID and the world economy. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about, you know, what you found in that work and, you know, how has COVID, there was a lot of concern, of course, that COVID was going to, you know, hurt the prospects of the poor parts of the world uh, more, more dramatically than the rest of us. And I certainly would say that, you know, is true, but I wonder, you know, what you would say about that. Yes, I think the sad truth is that in a way, all of our worst fears have been confirmed. And that's true in terms of global policymaking. It's true in terms of how national governments have responded. And it's true in terms of what it has meant for inequality. So let me first talk about the global policymaking. You know, when COVID happened, it's a global health pandemic, right? So here is a thing that doesn't respect national borders, doesn't have passport visa requirements, it's going to spread all over. So the optimists among us thought that, well, this means that there's going to be a global response, that people will see that you have to actually think globally and, and attack it uh, with cooperation. That didn't happen. What we got is extreme nationalist responses in the worst possible ways. We got vaccine grabbing by the rich countries. We got uh, aggressive control over intellectual property by a few companies mainly based in the global north, which uh, prevented other countries from being able to make and distribute vaccines in time. And so you got a spread of the disease. I mean, it was a remarkable achievement to make those vaccines that fast. That There's no doubt. And that was really because, you know, lots of states put their minds to it, decided that they're going to do this. And it shows that you can do it if you put your minds to it. But then once you got that, you still delayed the whole process of spreading it. 
and making sure that everybody in the world got access. Whereas if it's genuinely a public health pandemic, the first thing you do is to maximize the distribution because that's how you stop it. It was in the interests of vaccine companies not to do that because first of all, they could maximize their profits within the rich countries where they were selling most. But also the more you allow it to spread to other countries, the more variants you get and therefore the more need for boosters. And as we can see, we are still in this process where now, once again, everybody in the U.S. has to get another booster because the thing is still going on and so on. So the profits for the vaccine companies dominated over the lives of people and the interests of the world. The second failure, I would say, and this was this is a failure of government because the companies will do what they have to do. This is a failure of governments in terms of how they subsidized, how they regulated uh, and then, of course, how they behaved, which was extremely nationalistically and foolishly, I would say. But then the other big failure in developing countries, some of it was not internal. I, I mean, there is this broader issue that I've mentioned, but among the rich country, the middle income countries that could have done better, and I would put my own country, India, in that group, among the countries that could have done better, our response was a very brutal and unequal response. So uh, the government imposed a lockdown very early in the game, basically following on China and so on, when there were only about 400 cases in the whole country, in a country of 1.3 billion people, 400 cases, right? Localized in four towns or cities. And instead of saying, well, all right, we'll do a kind of tracing and testing and partial lockdown in one place, they imposed a countrywide lockdown. And it was like a military curfew. You would, you could literally get shot if you were out on the street with four hours notice, with absolutely no warning. Even the state governments that had to implement this were not told in advance. So it was ridiculous. And of course, it meant, and remember, this Indian economy is one where 95% of the people are informal workers. That is, they don't have social protection. They don't have legal protection. They have nothing in terms of half of them are self-employed. And so you suddenly say, well, that's it. You can't go out on the street tomorrow for the next 21 days. The 21 days gets extended, extended. It becomes two and a half months. You cannot go out and earn a living. Unbelievable. And yet that's what we did to our people. There are all these migrants, uh, about 150, 200 million migrants from rural uh, parts of the India who live and work in the big cities who were literally starving. And so you had this extraordinary long march of migrants walking back home because you'd closed public transport, you hadn't allowed people to move. And even when they're walking, they are risking their lives because you're not supposed to be out on the road. And yet the desperation is such that this is what you do. The kinds of extreme inequality that um, were evident during the management of this disease were, I mean, I could go on and on, but there were so many instances. Now, India is an extreme case, but we're not the only one. I think the existing inequalities were massively accentuated across the world. So that's another way in which government responses, I think, were very, very lacking. And then finally, there's the fiscal response. So the rich countries, particularly the US, they went out there and started spending. And it was funny because it's a complete reversal. All these years we've been told, oh, you know, governments can't spend, we can't run fiscal deficits. The monetary policy can be loose. We can 
make lots of you know concessions in terms of very very low interest rates maybe negative interest rates and lots of liquidity being made available but governments cannot run deficits suddenly it seems they can okay so the rich countries spend anywhere between 10 to 30% of gdp additionally in the covid year if you look at the uh, period between January 2020 and March 2021, these are IMF estimates, the rich countries spent on average 26% of GDP more. Can you imagine? That much more. The middle-income countries spent about 4 to 6% of GDP more. The low-income countries spent only 2% of GDP more. Now, you can say that that's terrible and it's a big difference, but that doesn't even tell you the extent of the difference because that's just your share of GDP, right? What does it mean in absolute terms? In the United States, the US government spent additionally $26,000 per capita, additional money. In the low-income countries, they spent $2 per capita, additional money. Now, what does that mean? If you're spending only $2 per capita, that's negligible, right? It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't really change. And you're in the same or maybe a worse economic catastrophe than in the rich countries. So you don't get any support, social protection. You don't get a revival of your economy. Many of these countries have yet to recover, really, from the impact of covid including in economic terms, because of the fact that they really didn't do the kind of public spending that the rich countries were able to do. Right. So even as they're trying to get out of the COVID crisis, Russia invades Ukraine. And obviously that has massive impact on the grain supplies, for example, and oil, cooking oil and, and those kinds of products that came out of Ukraine in huge amounts. And some of that's been mitigated by some of these arrangements uh, by, you know, with Russia to allow for exports and that sort of thing. But that's a shaky situation at this point. So I wonder, you know, what would you say? We don't know how long this conflict is going to drag on. There seems to me very little sign of anything changing anytime soon. Uh, so it could drag out for quite a while. I mean, how would you assess the impact of the, you know, the Ukraine, the Russia-Ukraine uh, conflict on on the world economy and particularly, of course, on the poor. So here's another very interesting thing. The Ukraine war actually had no impact on global grain supplies. I know this is going to sound unbelievable, right? You're going to say, how can that be? Russia and Ukraine together, they accounted for a quarter of global wheat exports, except Russia is a big exporter of fertilizer. How could it possibly be? Well, that is actually what happened. In fact, I have... I have an article, research article coming out, but there is a, there is a piece in Project Syndicate that I wrote precisely about this. The idea that the war caused global grain shortages is a myth. The war did cause an increase in prices, but that's because the very fact that Russia and Ukraine are big suppliers of wheat was used by media and then by big agribusinesses and subsequently by financial activity in the futures market to raise prices. That's really what happened. If you track what's happening to global grain supply, you see, that's the funny thing about wheat. It's globally produced. It's all over the world. So when there's a shortage in one particular area, it can be met by an increase in supply in another area. Okay. And 
actually the FAO data now shows us and the International Grain Council data shows us there was really no impact on global supply or even on global trade. Global exports increased by 6 million tons in the period from July 2021 to June 2022. That is the peak of that price increase. If you look at what happened to wheat prices, they zoom up, they go up by about 30% between January and June 2022. Then they come down again. By December, they're back to pre-war levels. But the war is continuing. Nothing has changed. So then people say, oh, that's because, you know, we worked out this deal for the Black Sea. The Russians had embargoed Ukraine exports from the Black Sea and Odessa. And then there was this deal worked out with Turkey and the UN. And that's why the supplies eased. Okay, let's look at what happened to the Black Sea grain exports that Ukraine was allowed to make. Did it go to the starving people of the world? That's what everyone said, that, you know, Africans are starving. It's going to go to the poor Africans, etc. No, of the grain that Ukraine exported after the deal was announced and since till date, 85% of it has gone to other European countries, rich countries in Europe. And... I think 9% has gone to poor countries, of which most of it went to Bangladesh. But globally, all these countries were then basically getting wheat from some other place. They had to face the price increase, but that price increase was not because of supply. It was because of the ability of global agribusiness to manipulate popular sentiment to just raise prices. Everybody said, oh, yeah, sure, prices have to go up. And so they accepted it. And the activity of financial players in the futures market. So in the Paris wheat exchange, which is the biggest wheat exchange in Europe, financial players accounted for 72% of the long positions in uh, by, by June. Now, why should a financial player hold wheat? What are they going to do with wheat? They're not doing it for hedging. It's entirely speculative. So even if it's uh, you know not a product of uh, a decrease in grain supply, you know in reality the prices have gone up, right? For these yes. things. So the what has been the impact? The prices of that? went up and then they've come down again globally. So they're back to pre-invasion levels. Uh, oh, or? they they were back to pre-invasion levels almost a year ago. I see. So, so the economic impact of the Russia-Ukraine conflict is not as severe as we've been well, no, that's to the, be led to believe. Well, so that's the point. It is not as severe in the rich world, because in the rich world, the prices went up and came down again. Global prices went up and came down again. Uh, but in poor countries, what happened? Especially wheat importing countries, they and oil importing countries, they really faced it because their import prices went up. They were already facing difficulties because you know of the COVID situation. Capital moved back to the US because the US tightened its money supply. So they really didn't have the foreign exchange to buy. And then their currencies depreciate because of all of these things that I've talked about. And when your currency depreciates, your domestic price is rising. Now, it's first rising because of the import price, then it keeps rising, even when the import price falls. Your domestic price keeps rising because of the currency devaluation. So I, in fact, have looked at four countries that are major importers of wheat. And it turns out that even after the global price fell back to pre-war levels, in none of these countries did the price fall. And in some of them, they kept increasing. 
So I want to close out our discussion um, with a question, a very broad question that arises from, uh, you know, your appointment to this uh, Secretary General's uh, high-level advisory board on effective multilateralism and, you know, ask a very broad question about uh, what you think, you know, the the, the task of that uh, commission or that committee, as I understand it, is uh, to develop a vision for the UN and other organizations. So what would you say are the most global, m- most pressing global health problems today? And are they the same problems as prevailed at a time when the world was a poorer place? This is a huge question. And that's yes. something that we, <laughs> it's something we also considered in the WHO Council on the Economics of Health for All. In fact, you know, both of those committees or councils have actually submitted the reports. We submitted the uh, report on effective multilateralism in April to the Secretary General, and it's called A Pact for People and Planet. It sets out what you could do in uh, five major areas, which include the international financial architecture. It includes, uh, you know, governing the planet and nature and doing that in a sort of sustainable way. It includes digital governance and also peace, security issues. So it's very ambitious and, of course, not likely to see too much implementation. But, you know, hey, we can always hope. (laughs) Uh, The WHO Council, again, we've really talked about four different areas in which we have to have a different vision in terms of how we are going to deal with public health concerns, which increasingly are going to be global, whether we like it or not. So we have uh, something on financing health, which is relating to both the financial architecture and national approaches to financing health. We have uh, one on technology and knowledge and how we as- how states have to assist in creating the knowledge and disseminating it. But also um, the chair of the council was Mariana Matsukato. So as you know, she's very interested in co-creating markets and shaping markets. And so a lot of how do you shape markets to make sure innovation is for the people and so on. So we made a bunch of suggestions for all of this. But specifically in response to your question, I would say that you know the pandemic we've just experienced was a teaser. There is no question that we are going to face more and more and multiple, maybe even simultaneous public health threats, even stemming from climate change, simply because there will be more zoonotic diseases, there will be more spread of different types of illnesses resulting from changing temperatures. And many parts of the world, people have not developed traditional resistance to these things. And that in turn will allow virus and bacteria to multiply. In that context, we already have antimicrobial resistance growing as one of the largest public health threats of our time. And we are simply not equipped to deal with any of these. All of our efforts are piecemeal, ad hoc, and still ultimately deeply nationalist in orientation. We still somehow cannot think cooperatively. You know, honestly, I i mean, I don't want to sound apocalyptic, but I do believe that humanity, we are really standing at the edge of a precipice. And so insofar as any of us can have hope, it's because we think that, you know, for ultimately humanity can step back, that we can pull back from this precipice and and do the minimal that is rational in, in such a context. And that's, I think, the hope that all of us have to sustain. <laughs> 
Well, I hope they take up the recommendations that you've made because I don't think I can go through another thing like the COVID <laughs> pandemic. So the the prognosis you've just provided is not an encouraging one. And it, you know, this always strikes me as a very difficult problem. You have to spend money on something that you know may or may not actually happen, and that has to be uh, you know uh, approved by legislators who have constituents that you know have other concerns more media concerns. I mean, it's a very difficult kind of problem to address, it seems to me. So I hope your work bears fruit and, uh, you know, helps stave off some of those kinds of crises. But that's it for today's episode. I want to thank Professor Jayanti Ghosh for sharing her insights about what's going on in the world economy and inequality. Uh, look for us on the New Books Network and remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank Osvaldo Mena Aguilar for his technical assistance, as well as to acknowledge Duncan McKay for sharing his song International Horizons as the theme music for the show. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us. We look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons.